You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and to all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that Yahweh has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox, or a lamb, or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to Yahweh in front of the tabernacle of Yahweh, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to Yahweh, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to Yahweh. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of Yahweh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to Yahweh, that man shall be cut off from his people. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood." And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Any one also of the people of Israel, or the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature. For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself, or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 607 of this podcast. And that was not a long chapter, was it? It was pretty short, pretty to the point. We hear, see some follow-up on the whole 
Azazel, goat demons thing from chapter 16, Leviticus chapter 16. And we see God taking it very seriously and something of a, well, strong wording in how the people of Israel and their interactions with these goat demons are described. The word used is whoring. That, that's the word. The word is whoring. And we see actually a lot of instances of that word in the Bible. We do. When I look this word up in NASB, it's translated in this verse, verse 7 of Leviticus 17. It's translated harlot. And the phrase is play the harlot. So the word harlot in Hebrew is zana. And it means to commit fornication, be a harlot, play the harlot, to commit fornication, commit adultery, to be a cult prostitute, to be unfaithful to God, to cause to commit adultery is also another variation, to force into prostitution, to commit fornication. You get the idea. The general idea is this is sexual immorality. But the word picture that is being presented to describe this false worship of goat demons is sexual, actually, which is curious. And if it were once or twice, we would say, hmm, okay, maybe that's a throwaway. Literal Bible, the literal Bible app that I have on my phone says this is found in 83 verses, 83. And that's not even if I'm missing some other words that can be translated much the same. That's 83 verses at least in which this zana is rendered. 17 of them are in the Pentateuch. 15 are in the books of history. Six are in the wisdom and poetry literature. 30 occur in the major prophets. 15 in the minor prophets. So really all throughout the Old Testament, this is used again and again to describe unfaithfulness in worship. Worshiping other gods is described as a parallel to sexual immorality. And I wonder how many of us actually are more squeamish about any reference to sexual immorality. We're more squeamish about that than we are any reference to idolatry in this age. In our day, in our pluralistic relativistic, multicultural day, it is very normal for people to worship other gods, for someone to be trotted out who is a Buddhist or a Muslim, for instance. Or increasingly, we see people who are Satanists and they maybe are LARPing, maybe they are just trying to make Christians uncomfortable in particular, conservatives uncomfortable. But you see pagans, you see Wiccans, you see folks who are interested in the old Norse gods in a renewed way. But we also see a lot of sexual immorality. And Christians in particular tend to be very keen to omit references to sex and sexual immorality. We don't want anything licentious. We don't want anything sensual. We don't want to make any references to sex unless we're more progressive and liberal, and then it's 
in your face all the time. And then you've got to affirm it. You've got to normalize it. You've got to say, ah, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner and all that kind of stuff, but then pass on as quickly as possible. But how would it be if we were as uncomfortable with idolatry and with blending in a false worship and the worship of false gods, if we were as uncomfortable and maybe even arguably more uncomfortable about that in our society as compared to sexual immorality. We see both all over the place, but even just the faithlessness, the denial of God's existence or the relativizing, well, what makes your God so special? Ooh, mm, are we as concerned? Are we as serious about that as we are avoiding sexual immorality? It's a curious thing to ponder maybe, but I have heard Christians shy away from using the word that is 83 times found in the Old Testament, whoring or play the harlot or what have you. They, they shy away from that because it's a bad word. It's not polite. It's coarse. And yet it occurs 83 times from the prophets, from Moses writing in the Pentateuch, from the wisdom literature. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Maybe we are more squeamish about using that word and talking about that than God is, and his servants in the Old Testament were. Also, too, maybe we are not nearly as equivalently squeamish about the equivalent spiritually of false worship, of worship of false gods. Maybe we need to be less squeamish about describing that as whoredom. But besides that little bit, which actually I think helps to add some clarity to what we were talking about in the previous episode concerning Azazel, this curious, mysterious, named supernatural being that the scapegoat is sent off to into the desert once a year on the Day of Atonement. All of the sins of the people are put on this goat, and this goat is sent off to Azazel. Besides that, in the first nine verses of Leviticus 17, we also see in verses 10 through the end of the chapter, verse 16, laws against eating blood. And I wonder if this isn't right next to talk of worshiping, sacrificing to goat demons, because it's related. This is part of a pagan ritual. This is part of a false worship of false gods and demons. Also, interesting to note, I just recently watched an interview Glenn Beck did with Jonathan Kahn about his new book, The Return of the Gods, in which he posits that what we're seeing with abortion and transgenderism and homosexuality and sexual immorality of all kinds in society today, he posits that that is actually a return of Canaanite deities like Baal, like Molech, like Ishtar. You know, along those lines, he pointed out that the Greek word for their gods was daemoni. So that's what they called their gods. And then when you come to the New Testament and you see the word used for demons that we use now in the English, demon, 
That is the word for the Greek gods, their pantheon. Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite and all the rest. That's a curious little bit to key in on. Also, he points out every other culture, every other culture besides Christian Western civilization, the Jews after the Exodus, once they had been given the law, every other culture has practiced human sacrifice. Everyone. You'll see references to this in ancient Greek history and ancient Roman history, passing references to sacrificial victims. You'll see some of it in Greek mythology, as we think of it, which might not be all myth in the sense of being a made-up story. It might be partly true history, but we see this in the Iliad. And it's curious that here in Leviticus 17, eating blood is taken extraordinarily seriously. And again, like I said in the last episode, we see this repetition of This is the law for the native Israelite and also the sojourner among you. Just because somebody's not from around here, that's no excuse. That does not mean that you let them do this. If they're a guest in your land, you tell them that is forbidden. You do not do that here. If you do that here, if you practice that here, you are going to be exiled or else punished. But that is to say that... This idea in the modern age that goes along with moral relativism and multiculturalism, this idea that you can't impose your morality on people who don't agree to your morality, who don't worship your God, who are not Christians, this idea is foreign to the Old Testament and to the New Testament for that matter as well, but particularly the Old Testament. This is a foreign concept. It doesn't come from God that you say, hmm, well, if you don't agree with the morality, if you don't agree with this law, you don't have to follow it. No, 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 that is not left open. Now, some things, some transgressions, some sins and violations of God's law in the Old Testament result in the offender being cut off from their people. So they're put out, right? They're just exiled, essentially. If you want to be like the pagans, if you want to be like the Gentiles, well, you can go and live with them because you're not part of this people anymore. You're not part of this nation anymore. So that was the proper penalty in many cases. Sometimes it was death. Murder, for instance, was a capital offense. Adultery was a capital offense. Again, adultery being sexual immorality involving a married woman. Whether the man is married or not is actually beside the point. But if the woman is married, then it's adultery, and that's a capital offense for her and for him both. But in many cases, the penalty was, you're just cut off from your people. In some cases, it was, you will be unclean until the evening or for this many days, and you will offer a sacrifice, and you will go to the priest and present yourself, and then you will be clean. But we don't see this idea from God that has been so dominant in recent decades here in the U.S. that says, if I'm a Christian, for instance, and I personally am opposed to abortion, I can't tell somebody who's not a Christian that they're not allowed to abort their baby. Who says? And does that only apply to abortion or does that apply to murder of anybody and everybody of all ages? 
of all developmental stages and maturation. How about if I'm a Christian and they're not a Christian and they want to murder, uh, I don't know, some random stranger they want to steal the sneakers off of? Do, do I not get to tell them they are not allowed to commit murder because my reason for being opposed to murder is God said thou shalt not murder? See, these things break down when you follow them through. They're not supposed to be examined. They're just supposed to silence those who would judge with right judgment. And we shouldn't fall for it. That's my point. We shouldn't fall for it. We have been, in too many cases, too often, but we shouldn't anymore. Moving on. A article from Epoch-inspired staff over at the Epoch Times caught my attention this morning as I was cleaning out the email inbox since I just got paid and my routine is when I get paid, I go through my email inbox, look for reminders for what's due, log in and pay over the internet. And very often I'll see news items that have come through with various subscriptions that I have, including the Epoch Times. I have a few, the Billings Gazette, the Epoch Times. I also am signed up for a subscription to the Daily Wire I get email alerts from a few others that I don't pay anything for, but the Epoch Times, they have some good stuff. They have some really good journalism and good reporting, and it helps round out my consumption of current events to include them in the mix. But this story in particular caught my attention, and the title, I'll tell you first, and then it'll it'll become clear as we go. Uh, The title of this piece is Woman Loves Ultra-Conservative Tradwife Trend Inspired by 1950s Called Alt-Right Extremist by Some. Published April 24th. There are pictures of this gal throughout as you scroll down through the Epoch Times article. Pictures that this young woman has posted to social media of herself being very domestic dressing up in very feminine clothes that are very reminiscent of the 1950s, doing her hair up in a way that is very reminiscent of the 1950s, doing her makeup and wearing jewelry that is very 1950s, so on and so forth. She is a beautiful young woman, and there's a picture of her here, or a few pictures of her here with her husband on their wedding day, and since, in which the two of them look very, very happy. Uh, I'll be honest, they look very happy. And some people are very unhappy that she is embracing this fashion. And I didn't know that this was a trend, I'll be honest. I had no idea. I'm not shocked, I suppose, but it is curious. But even more curious than the fact that this would be a trend, trad wife, by the way, stands for traditional wife, Go figure. What's even more curious to me is that anybody would be upset about a woman being a traditional housewife. But why why would that offend you? I mean, where does all the talk of let's not impose our morality on others and let people just be whoever they want to be, where does all that talk go when a young woman, for instance, in her mid-20s, I believe she is, decides, okay, well, who I want to be is a traditional housewife vis-a-vis what was normative in the 1950s. 
where does all of the talk of inclusivity and being tolerant and accepting people for who they are, where does that go when somebody says, well, okay, who I want to be is a housewife from the 1950s? It is something of a tell that the intention behind those talking points is that you be controlled by what the zeitgeist is today. The sensibilities of 80 years ago are highly offensive to the radical left. What they want is something of an opposite as they see it to the 1950s. And yet, ironically, in its way, what the radical left is calling for in the way of ideological conformity is very similar to the 1950s. They wouldn't believe it, but you might not either, unless I explained. Why I say the ideological conformity that the left demands today is similar to the 1950s is because in the 1950s, there was this embrace of general issue everything. Suburbia was very cookie cutter. All of the houses in this whole neighborhood, this whole development, this whole city are going to be built on the same plan and your house is going to look just like everybody else's. Your car is going to look pretty much like everybody else's. Your clothes are going to look pretty much like everybody else's. Everyone's values, everyone's way of life will be very conformed to this pattern. And if you step outside of that pattern, then that is a problem for the community. What are you doing? And some of this came out of World War II and everything being general issue and mass-produced during World War II to keep up the war effort, mass production of everything a soldier would need to fight against the Imperial Japanese or Nazi Germany, everything that the soldier would need on the battlefield was easier to produce if you could just make lots of it in the exact same way in a factory. Not just the munitions, but the uniforms and canteens and vehicles And you would see a little bit of creativity here and there. Let's say, for instance, with nose art on airplanes, somebody might get creative there very often, putting some pinup or phrase or animal that was emblematic or tally marks for how many enemies they had shot down or how many missions they'd run. They would put that on there and then that would differentiate, but otherwise... One looked like the next and the next and the next and the next. And so men come back from that. And there's a lot of leftover GI, general issue, government issue material. And it gets repurposed. And there's a lot of general issue, government issue mindset, thanks to FDR. We had way too much FDR administration in the early part of the 20th century here in America. And it was not so good. And when it took a cultural direction and it, affected the way that families organized themselves, it became somewhat repressive and restrictive. But now, okay, so so now you fast forward and we see a lot of that from the left, whatever the new standard is, constantly evolving. And so that can throw us for a loop. But whatever the new standard is today, everyone's got to get with the program on that. Whatever the latest cause is, to promote social justice. You've got to champion it. You've got to promote it. You've got to normalize it. You've got to 
present yourself as an ally, speak up for those who have supposedly been marginalized. And yet the irony is it's a very homogenizing push and there's so little tolerance for conservatives. And ironically, a supposedly ultra-conservative trad wife who is dressing up like she's out of the 1950s is in a fashion sense and maybe even in some of the morals and the values of the 1950s. I mean, she she looks like she's right out of the 1950s, but then again, given the current moment we're in, she is being rather the opposite <laughs> of what a conformist looked like in the 1950s. So it's it's a funny, curious, ironic uh, way of protesting, you might say, and saying, I, I'm opting out of that. And it could represent, uh, you know, stay with me here for a moment. It could represent a larger pendulum swing that's just about to happen where you do have people saying, you know what was great? The 1950s. Let's go back to the 1950s and who we were as a country because something was good in the 1950s that we've forgotten and we've lost and it's been purged and we need to get it back. We need that energy of the greatest generation. And actually the millennial generation, according to the Strauss-Howe generational theory, the millennial generation has a lot more in common with the GI generation, the greatest generation, than we do with Gen X, for sure. And so would it be shocking? Would it be shocking, really, if we said, you know, we're going to try and live life more like our grandparents did, and maybe in some of our cases, more like our great-grandparents. We're going to live life more like they did, even imitating the fashion because it'll be easier for us to imitate the values thereby. And to be very clear too, I mean, let's just, let, let's be very clear. The woman pictured in the Epoch inspired staff post here from April 24th, just five days ago, she is a beautiful woman and she looks very feminine and she is arguably more attractive than many in her generation who, going back to how many times, 83, in the Old Testament, we find the word whore or whoring or play the harlot uh, in the Hebrew or what's translated from the Hebrew into English with those words and phrases. The fashion in the mainstream that you will find all over the internet and all over magazines and all over everywhere is either in many cases, from what I've observed, either this, I'm just going to wear baggy everything and try and play up how I don't want to be seen. You know, some women will go that direction. Or it's like they are literally trying to dress like prostitutes. Like that's the fashion. The fashion is to dress like a prostitute would have been recognized as dressing here just a few decades ago. And compared to that, which looks so extraordinarily sad, like you can't smile and you're not supposed to be happy because it might not look like the Kardashians are being kept up with or what have you. You got to look like a bad girl, right? Because that's become so normative, uh, for one thing, there's a tragedy to it. For another thing, it stops being attractive. When it's transgressive, 
a certain contingent will say, ooh, wow, man. But when that becomes the standard and everybody's expected to conform to it, it ceases to be transgressive. The actual transgressive thing is to say, you know what was great? Long feminine dresses and feminine blouses and looking like a housewife from the 1950s. That becomes the new transgressive thing. And then that actually, in its own way, becomes the new definition of what it means to be a bad girl. And what's confusing in all of this for so many of us is unless we accept that there is an objective standard of good and evil, what is transgressive today, tomorrow, could be what everybody's expected to get along with and to embrace and affirm. And also what's good today, tomorrow, could be considered transgressive. And how exhausting is that? How tedious. And you know what? Honestly, if this young gal and her husband are saying, we kind of want to insulate ourselves from that. We kind of just want to do our own thing in our own household. And we want to embrace being more or less wholesome in a way that would be recognizable in the relatively recent past. You know what? That's a lot less exhausting. That's probably a lot more restful. And just embrace that certain people are going to say that's awful and ultra conservative and transgressive according to the new paradigm. Just embrace it and say, yeah, whatever. So what? I, I'm not looking for your approval. Clearly, that's part of why, that's part of why I'm doing this thing is because I don't need your approval. But do keep in mind something else that's similar to the 1950s is we have something of a new Cold War with another communist power. This is another reason why maybe there was so much conformity along certain lines in the 1950s. You know, when we won the Cold War and the Soviet Union collapsed in the 80s, thanks to Ronald Reagan declaring them an evil empire and saying, we win, they lose. And then leading, not just saying it, but leading in practical terms along those lines. Maybe there was so much conformity because a pressing threat like China poses right now scared a lot of Americans, a lot of young Americans who were thinking, I don't know how much time I've got. You know, we could get attacked at any time. War could break out. There could be another draft and then men are sent off to fight and die and maybe be, even if they make it back, be gone for years. So we've got to make the most of the time that we have right now. And we want to be clean and we want to be wholesome and we want to do what we know is reasonably safe to secure for ourselves a good life and a home and family. And maybe we're seeing some of that come back in with this whole business with China. You know, there's another piece from the Epoch Times, this one by Mimi Gwyn Lee. China flies 38 fighter jets, six Navy vessels near Taiwan. This was April 28th, so just yesterday. More than 38 fighter jets and other warplanes from China's military flew near Taiwan in the latest chapter of military escalation from the regime since it staged war games around the island earlier in April. The Taiwanese Defense Ministry announced the incident on Friday in its daily update of Chinese military activities from the previous 24 hours. This is recognized as an apparent response to a meeting between Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican from California. This 
has the potential of being World War III. And if it's not that, then it's almost certainly Cold War 2.0. And why that's relevant is because if you're a young woman in her mid-20s, you're thinking to yourself, a whole bunch of the men could be just about to ship off to go fight in Asia or in the Ukraine. And it's best to get that domestic life, that sweet home life and family life now while the getting is good. Also too, and the Babylon Bee poked some fun at this here a couple of years ago, there was a funny sketch in which a husband and his wife were arguing about whose turn it was to do the dishes and take the trash out and clean up around the house. And then <laughs> something came on the TV talking about how World War III had just broken out and then you know, cut to the TV and cut to the man's face and he's just looking very, very concerned and the argument stops cold. And then the next cut to the woman is she's changed out of all of the modern woman's attire and into this 1950s image of the ideal housewife, complete with a frilly pink apron and everything. And she's like, here you go. Here's your sandwich. (laughs) And she's very happy to keep the house and clean it and do the chores and all the rest. And yeah, well, good luck. Good luck going off with the draft and all that, you know, I'll have a hot meal ready for you when you get home. You know, like it, we, we joke, we laugh, but then again, this is what in many cases historically has to serve as the wake up call for nations and cultures that have gotten stupid and lost their way. And the idea that you would actually draft young women and send them off makes the domestic vision look a lot better all of a sudden. But when everything's comfortable and everything's easy, well, then it gets really easy to argue about silly things that shouldn't be a debate, like who's going to wash the dishes and whose turn is it to vacuum the floors and mop and so on and so forth. But speaking of Ukraine, here's a piece from the Billings Gazette written by Hannah Arerova with the AP. Two killed, 10 wounded as Russian forces hit Ukrainian museum. Ukrainian officials say a Russian missile has hit a museum building in the north of the country, killing at least two and wounding 10 other people. You know, what's curious here is this museum building shouldn't be a target. But in a desperate war, anything and everything has to be reassessed for its long-term value based on the short-term horrors of people killing and being killed. And if you want to bring the conflict to a speedy conclusion, sometimes mistakes are made. Other times, atrocities are committed to try and take the fight out of the enemy. But either way, when we on the outside of a conflict like this looking in, think about what's probably a safe place to hide during a war. You might think, yeah, a museum should be pretty safe until you recognize that bullets don't always hit where they were intended to hit. Sometimes they go past, sometimes they miss. Also, sometimes artillery shelling 
is uh, based off of wrong coordinates. That's a possibility. Sometimes bombs dropped from airplanes don't land on the place that they were expected to. Something goes awry. The pilot gets confused. The guy dropping the bombs gets his timing out of whack. Sometimes going after a symbol of a people's unique, separate, distinct identity all of a sudden makes that a viable target in somebody's mind, anybody's mind. All it takes is somebody who's got the authority to do it deciding, yeah, let's go ahead and try it. And then the dozen people who are in that building thinking they're probably as safe as can be, why would anybody attack a Ukrainian museum? All of a sudden, those dozen people are either no longer with us or their lives are forever altered. Maybe they have survived, but then they're maimed and they're injured and they lose a limb or they're never going to be able to function quite as well as they did before. I bring this up because it goes back to this whole question of what the coming years and decades hold in store for us here in the United States. If we did have a World War III, there's all kinds of places here in this country that we might just have gotten very comfortable and very assuming about as safe, which no longer would be safe because they could be hit with long-range munitions, or we could be invaded, forces coming down through Canada or up from Mexico, or these things could be attacked via hackers who work for the Chinese military or the Russian military, hacked into and sabotaged remotely. And then all of a sudden, things are blowing up and derailing, for instance, for example. Things are rupturing and exploding and people are being hurt and injured and poisoned and you didn't see that coming. And all of a sudden, things that we had thrown on the ash heap of history, which we said were on the wrong side of history, which we said were gone and are never coming back again. It's time to be a progressive about this. Trust the experts. All of a sudden, we start dusting those items off and seeing if we can put them back into service again. Because the experts got us into this, and we're not going to trust the same experts. We might still trust experts, but we're not going to trust the same experts that got us into this mess. We were trusting them blindly, and no mas, no more. Now, the question is, from a domestic standpoint, from a social standpoint, from a American institution standpoint, are we ready for either World War III or another Cold War? But let's just talk a little bit about our military's readiness. Speaking of experts, speaking of the prospect of what a war with China might look like. March 30th, 2023, the Heritage Foundation published a report of the National Independent Panel on Military Service and Readiness. The summary reads as follows. National defense should not be a partisan issue. All Americans share the common interest in a strong U.S. military and should be united in reducing obstacles that thwart the highest levels of readiness. The panel expresses its appreciation for the men and women serving in the armed forces and for their sacrifices. It is in their names and interest that the panel fervently hopes that the changes recommended in this report will be implemented as soon as possible. In brief, 
the conclusions of this report are that the Biden administration has imposed progressive social and environmental agendas that are distracting the military from its primary mission and undermining readiness. And I quote, specifically evidence indicates that appointed Pentagon political leaders are dragging divisive progressive social justice ideologies into an institution that for 248 years has sought to remain apolitical and neutral. Fundamentally at risk is the warrior ethos within the U.S. Armed Forces. There is no single definition of the American warrior ethos, but at its core, it, quote, binds warriors to one another and to the citizens in whose name they fight and serve. It is grounded in values such as courage, honor, and self-sacrifice. The ethos reminds warriors of what society expects of them and what they expect of themselves, end quote. Now, how do you have that? Here's my big question. How do you have that when you are simultaneously affirming that everybody should just be living for themselves? And by living for themselves, I mean, if a man decides he wants to get more of the benefits that he associates with women, he therefore writes himself a blank check and the left cashes it saying that he can terrorize all of society, anybody, anybody in society that tells him no, disapproves, disagrees, says, no, you can't. No, I won't. Uh-uh, that's not who you are. There's a major problem with recruiters being able to find people who are One, willing to serve in the armed forces right now. Two, physically fit enough. And the physical fitness or the lack thereof also is indicative of self-indulgence, which the left promotes, and which the left demonizes conservatives for critiquing, criticizing, opposing, countering, contradicting, arguing against. When we can't get people who are both willing and fit enough to serve in the military, that's a major problem for readiness. Also, too, there's a sharp drop. The Heritage Foundation report notes a sharp drop in Americans' confidence in the U.S. military. The panel concluded, and I quote, that a large portion of the current recruiting shortfall is due to a drop in trust and confidence in the U.S. military. A recent poll indicated that The percentage of military and veteran families who would recommend military life had declined to 62.9% in 2021, down from 74.5% as of 2019. This decrease is especially concerning because military recruits tend to come from military families. According to U.S. Army Recruiting Command, 79% of recruits have relatives who served. So then what happens when you start asking your uncle or your grandfather or your cousin, or your brother who served in the military, what do you think? Should I enlist? And they say, I wouldn't. Not with this administration. Not with the Democrats in charge of Congress like they are. Not with this social climate. What happens if we get into a hot war? You know, it's rich that the left has wanted to get so tough in Ukraine, and they're shocked And they shouldn't have been shocked, but they're shocked by what Russia is doing to the Ukrainians. What's going on in cities that looked in recent years very much like American cities and people who looked very much like American people do. The left is shocked and boy, howdy, there's no price tag that's too high, except if they would actually let go of their insane and evil and wrong ideas 
for what to do with American society and what kind of an influence that America should have on the world stage. That cost they're not prepared to give any thought to. They won't consider, and they certainly are not ready to pay it. But the game changes decisively when a major global conflict breaks out. And the left, I think, is I think they're betting that the game will change in their favor, and all of a sudden their laundry list of social justice initiatives, environmental justice initiatives, so-called, will lead to them just being able to ram through whatever they want. But there's another possibility. And the other possibility is conservatives are able to say, this doesn't work. This doesn't work. It can't work. It needs to stop. The left needs to be removed from power in this country, or we can't win. We will have high casualties and maybe even lose a major world war and have a civil war to follow. And then what? Right? And then what? And then what happens if we are pitted against each other with the geopolitical landscape that we have right now? Then what happens? Russia and China and Iran and North Korea and the drug cartels in Mexico come in and carve us up. Switching gears a little bit. Another piece from the Epoch Times. This one by Emily Miller. Published April 20th. In-depth. First smart gun with fingerprint unlocking hits the market. Now, I'll just say I have a close family member who thinks these are a good idea. My dad, actually, he thinks these are a good idea and that, you know, surely this wouldn't violate or infringe on the Second Amendment. I disagree. I think these are a bad idea, in part because what happens if these smart guns don't unlock because you don't have your hands positioned just right, they don't unlock in a timely manner, and somebody who has the jump on you with a not smart gun, with a dumb gun, is able to take you out. When split seconds matter, you don't have time to be fumbling with the fingerprint reader, repositioning your hand and hoping that it'll unlock, and then you're going to take your shot. You don't have time for that. And part of how I know is because I've bought the little handgun safes that are biometric that you use your fingerprint to unlock. And I personally have been frustrated when it takes a full minute or more to get the thing wiped off and to just position my thumb just right, just right for it to scan my print and pop the lock. Now put that into a firearm that your life depends on in a moment of mortal peril and People will die if they are trusting themselves to these smart guns. This is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. If you start <clears throat> taking it into a different space too, and you say, okay, well, how about have the authentication be on your phone? It just do uh, like face ID, right? Like you just hold up your iPhone and it'll scan your face and it'll say, okay, yep, this gun is ready for you to use. It's like having a background check every time you want to use the firearm to defend yourself or somebody else. Really? What if... Hackers get in just like hackers are hacking into, oh, Matt Walsh's email, for instance. That's a recent thing that just happened. Hackers now have 20 years of Matt Walsh's emails. What if hackers hack into your accounts that pertain to using your smart gun and they just deactivate your ability to use your firearm? And now you're a sitting duck. Now now you are completely at their mercy. 
what if a foreign power invades this country and all they have to do to prevent common citizens from being able to protect their homeland, protect their families, all they have to do to neutralize us is send their hackers in to shut down the unlocking feature on your guns. It's just, it's a really bad idea. It's a really, really bad idea. This is as bad an idea on an individual level as the recent report that there's a push from the Biden administration to have the military go all electric. That's a terrible idea. Have you never heard of EMPs? Are those just not a concern? I mean, if you've got the technology, let's hear it, right? If you've got the batteries and the charging capacity to be able to keep these things as reliable and more reliable than internal combustion engine vehicles, let's hear it. But I don't think you do. I think you don't. And I'm very concerned that this is not being driven first and foremost by what's going to help you protect your family, what's going to help our military protect this country. This is being driven first and foremost by social justice warriors who are arrogant and know nothing. They're wise in their own eyes and they really don't place a high value on this country anyways. And they don't place a high value on your ability to protect yourself anyways, especially if you're conservative. I don't trust them. I don't trust them. I'm not going to trust my firearms to these people and their supposed smart gun designs. No, thanks. But speaking of all electric military, even as we have problems with military readiness, increasingly UN Climate Report 2022 was nasty, deadly, costly, and hot. Seth Borenstein, AP science writer, is republished here in the Billings Gazette. Looking back at 2022's weather with months of analysis, the World Meteorological Organization said last year really was as bad as it seemed when people were muddling through it, and about as bad as it gets until more warming kicks in. Killer floods, droughts, and heat waves hit around the world, costing many billions of dollars. Global ocean heat and acidity levels hit record highs, and Antarctic sea ice and European Alps glaciers reached record low amounts, according to the United Nations Climate Agency's State of Global Climate 2022 report released Friday. And let me just stop right there. Now tell me how many people will be harmed by your solutions. I'll wait. Okay, give me the numbers for how many people were harmed by the weather. Now tell me how many people are going to be hurt by you doing what you want to do about it in a absolute centralized way, in the most centralized way possible for people all over the world. Okay, so, so it cost many billions of dollars for the weather to do what the weather has done for all of recorded history, flood, cause fires, cause the crops to not grow in some places like you thought they would. There have been droughts for all of recorded human history, by the way. Climate has changed for all of recorded human history and long before humans were even a factor, according to mainstream science, secular scientists. But now tell me how many billions of dollars or thousands of billions of dollars what you want to do is going to cost. Also, please, if you would, while you're at it, tell me whether these problems have been getting better until recently with more 
use of fossil fuels, more development and refining of our technologies around fossil fuels, whether these problems that you're pointing out have been getting so much worse or actually have been getting better. The air has been getting cleaner. The planet has been getting greener. A little bit of warming is actually not such a bad thing. I say this coming from eastern Montana, where you can get weeks of negative, negative, negative below zero temps. Please, please, I'll wait. Tell me your answer to those questions so that we could do a side-by-side comparison instead of you just fear-mongering like the media has been doing for decades. I'll wait, but we'll move on to the next topic while I wait. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for president. If you didn't know, as a Democrat, he tweeted out on April 24th, Fox fires Tucker Carlson five days after he crosses the red line by acknowledging that the TV networks pushed a deadly and ineffective vaccine to please their pharma advertisers. Carlson's breathtakingly courageous April 19th monologue broke TV's two biggest rules. Tucker told the truth about how greedy pharma advertisers controlled TV news content, and he lambasted obsequious newscasters for promoting jabs they knew to be lethal and worthless. For many years, Tucker has had the nation's biggest audience, averaging 3.5 million, 10 times the size of CNN. Fox just demonstrated the terrifying power of big pharma. And do you know what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is really getting at here is Fox is in the business to make money. They're not in the business to agree with your private convictions or even your health, first and foremost, being a top priority. They're in the business of making as much money as possible. If their advertisers pull advertising and boycott them, well, then they're not making money. And in that case, what's the point? So even though Tucker Carlson is their biggest star, was their biggest star, they are going to sideline him as Robert F. Kennedy Jr. points out, they're going to sideline him because he is making a lot of powerful enemies and Fox News doesn't want the liability. They would control him if they could, but they can't, it would seem, so they just have to shut him up. And they're not releasing him from the contract so far as I know, so they want him to be sidelined for the 2024 election, which will from what I'm reading, hurt Republicans, and it will probably hurt RFK Jr. as well. Skipping over to ABC, Zachary Stieber over at the Epoch Times reports, ABC refuses to air RFK Jr. comments about COVID-19 vaccines. So ABC's got a tighter handle on this than Fox did, apparently. And by the way, you might say, well, Fox News, they could have edited everything. It was a live interview. That's how it was billed, and that's part of why they didn't actually cut certain things like ABC did. ABC didn't do what Fox did. They pre-recorded so that they could go back through and clean it up and keep you from hearing what they didn't want you to hear from RFK Jr. But then the problems with this are obvious. And they include that the real power clearly lies with corporate media, which some people are not convinced of. Some people, I don't think, are willing to be convinced of that. Others are convinced and they're just sure that this is a bad thing and what do you do about it? 
Others are convinced and they think it's a great thing. They think it's a good thing. This is how you protect democracy is you have the corporate media where supposedly the voice of the people is expressed (laughs) through journalists. And because there's lots of journalists and there's lots of corporate media outlets, therefore there's something more democratic about it. But is it actually the voice of the people? Therein lies the question. When there is a growing concern about the safety and the effectiveness of COVID vaccines, for instance, and then you have somebody running for president whose father was assassinated as he was running for president, whose uncle was assassinated while he was serving as president. When you have Robert F. Kennedy Jr. being censored by ABC News, because as they say, we should note that during our conversation, Kennedy made false claims about the COVID-19 vaccines. We've used our editorial judgment in not including extended portions of that exchange in our interview. When you have that as a direct quote from Davis, Lindsay Davis, the reporter, on behalf of management at ABC News, then is this a safeguard for we the people or is this a safeguard for pharmaceutical companies? Is this a safeguard for the bureaucrats who supposedly regulate but then also have an incestuous relationship with pharmaceutical companies? Is this a safeguard actually for the politicians who take in a lot of money and for the corporate news media that takes in a lot of money and runs interference for the pharmaceutical companies and the regulators? Who's actually being protected when a presidential candidate is censored by corporate media or social media like this? This is a rhetorical question because clearly I don't believe that we the people are being protected. I clearly don't believe that ABC News cutting off RFK Jr. is in our interest. It's in their interest. And so therefore, it's partiality and fraud after a fashion. It's us being manipulated and disenfranchised in some sense. Now, I don't support RFK Jr. for president. I wouldn't vote for him. I've seen him speak. I've been at an event where he was speaking here in the Capitol, in Colorado, in Denver, a event where Michelle Malkin and RFK Jr. and the head of the NAACP and the head of Christian Home Educators of Colorado all testified on the same page, opposed to creating a vaccine database for school-aged children in the state that would track which kids have gotten which vaccines and are up to date on their shots, citing privacy concerns, government overreach concerns, etc. I may not want to vote for RFK Jr., but I do want him to be able to have a debate with Joe Biden and to primary Joe Biden. I do want to see that, and I think we would all be the better for it. And if he's a better candidate than Joe Biden, I would rather see him run against Ron DeSantis, quite honestly. I would rather, I mean, I want to see the primary process play out for sure, as much as anything, for the sheer entertainment of watching DeSantis and Trump debate. But if it ends up being Trump and RFK Jr., that would be better 
than if it's Trump and Biden again, or even DeSantis and Biden. Harris Rigby is very much on the same page over at Not The Bee. In a post yesterday, he writes, here's why conservatives should be very supportive of RFK Jr. running against Biden. It's a good thing for a moderate liberal to run for the Democrat nomination. And it's also good that someone on the left is willing to challenge Biden and his failed policies. But there's another reason to support RFK's candidacy, Harris writes, even as conservatives. And that's because he has the name recognition that comes with Kennedy. And he's about to wake up a lot of Democrats as long as he continues to get his voice out, which, of course, ABC News knows as well as you or I. At War Clandestine on Twitter. One, do you all see how RFK Jr. is operating? He is red-pilling the blank out of the DNC base. RFK Jr. isn't saying anything we haven't been saying for years. It's just that it's significantly more effective coming from someone with a D next to their name. He knows exactly what he's doing. Clandestine is referring to this tweet where RFK calls out the government for its collusion with social media. To quote Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on his tweet from April 26th, Twitter files reveal that Pentagon partnered with Vanguard in billion-dollar project to censor free speech in America. Are any of my fellow Democrats troubled? Harris continues, there are no other Democrats with a large enough platform that are willing to do this. People like Tulsi Gabbard tried, but RFK Jr. is an old-school Democrat who refuses to tow the new Marxist party line. Continuing back with War Clandestine on Twitter. Two, to be clear, I'm suggesting that RFK Jr. knows he's not going to get the DNC nomination regardless of how many votes he gets. He is intentionally waking up DNC voters who refuse to listen to Trump talking points. RFK Jr. is a Judas goat and the establishment Dems know it. Three, infiltration is more effective than invasion, particularly when it comes to waking up normies. The left-wing sheep are conditioned to shut down anytime they see or hear anything from Trump, so we tell them the same talking points, but from a different messenger. The end. Now, what's Judas Goat, by the way? Here's a little helpful definition for you. Judas Goat is a trained goat used in general animal herding. The Judas Goat is trained to associate with sheep or cattle, leading them to a specific destination. In stockyards, a Judas Goat will lead sheep to slaughter, while its own life is spared. Remember that ABC News interview that I was just telling you about? Well, I'm going to play another cut for you here of some of that interview, some of the audio. Thanks to Stephen L. Miller for tweeting this out or retweeting Chief Nerds at the Chief Nerd post of it. Stephen L. Miller writes, do you want more RFK Jr.? Because This is how he hits 30% and forces a primary debate. Here is cut one. Take a listen. You've said in the past that there is a a correlation between uh, vaccines leading to autism that's totally been debunked. Wait a minute, who debunked it? We have not seen any kind of scientific connection from the CDC, the World Health Organization, the National Academy of Sciences. Those organizations are captive agencies, Lindsay. And so you think they're all in cahoots? Yeah, they're all captive. You've discussed the Kennedy family as like any family, there are disagreements. 
But I think what makes it different here is that several of your relatives have not just said that they disagree with you, but they've called you dangerous. And as you're probably well aware, there were two of your siblings and a niece who wrote in a Politico article back in 2019. He's helped to spread dangerous misinformation over social media and is complicit in sowing distrust of science behind vaccines. We stand behind him in his ongoing fight to protect our environment. However, on vaccines, He's wrong. Your sister Carrie has said, I love my brother Bobby, but I do not share or endorse his opinions on many issues, including the COVID pandemic, vaccinations, and the role of social media platforms in policing false information. Your sister Rory has said, uh, I admire his past work on it as an environmentalist. Because of him, we can swim in the Hudson, but due to a wide range of Bobby's positions, I'm supporting President Biden. I'm just curious, if you are not able to get your own sisters to vote for you for president, how would you make that appeal to American <laughs> voters? What is your family like? Do they agree? Agree with everything that you say and do. They'd probably vote for me if I ran for president. Yeah, well, I have siblings who will vote for me as well, but I have a big family and many of them will not. Um, I, I, I have two siblings who came to my announcement and a lot of other relatives as well. But I mean, there's disagreements, but you know, I love my family and you know, my family particular, in particular uh, grows, we grew up arguing with each other. And we are uh, very, very, I think, say, comfortable disagreeing with each other, both publicly and privately on issues, and at the same time loving each other. And that's something that I think we is a lesson that we ought to learn for this country. Uh, we can disagree with each other without hating each other, without vilifying each other, without marginalizing each other. I'm just making a distinction on just using your family's words well, calling yeah, but you dangerous. You were, yeah, but no, I was just using your family's words to call you dangerous rather than saying that's not like the typical family that might have disagreements around the kitchen room And table. how do you expect me to respond to that other than saying they were wrong about the issue that they consider me dangerous? Oh, that's a fair uh response. And my other point is just that if you don't regard the same scientific authorities. Science is rarely static. There are very few scientific principles that are immovable. Science is dynamic. And, you know, look, I, I, you, I've had, I've argued over probably, or I've, I've litigated over 500 lawsuits. In every one of those lawsuits, there are experts, authorities on one side and experts and authorities on the other that are saying the exact opposite thing. So no, I don't trust authority. I need to see the details. I need to see the signs. Your final pitch to voters. My pitch would be that, you know, we need, we, we need to look at what's happened to our country. We need to try to, um, to, to arrest this emergence of corporatism of the corrupt merger of state and corporate power that's undermining our values, that's strip mining our landscapes, uh, that is stealing the assets of the middle class of this country, that is compromising the values of this country, that's keeping us in a constant state of war, and that uh, is creating a, a nation that doesn't resemble the nation that you know, we all love, which is a nation with a few handful of billionaires and widespread poverty in which democracy does not have a prayer of continuing. And let's try to uh, let's try to take a new path that will allow us to give our children a country that is once again a moral authority around the globe, an exemplary nation, and that has a booming middle class in this country that can sustain democracy.
We should note that during our conversation, Kennedy made false claims about the COVID-19 vaccines. Data shows that the COVID-19 vaccines prevented millions of hospitalizations and deaths from the disease. He also made misleading claims about the relationship between vaccination and autism. Research shows that vaccines and the ingredients used for the vaccines do not cause autism, including multiple studies involving more than a million children and major medical associations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and the advocacy group Autism Speaks. We've used our editorial judgment in not including extended portions of that exchange in our interview. We thank Mr. Kennedy for the conversation. And there you go. There you go. So in other words, you will hear what they want you to hear, what they want you to believe is true, and they will just tell you, nope, we're not even going to let him speak on this or that, but we'll tell you what he said, and you can just trust us that he didn't tell you anything that would have been persuasive or convincing. The science is settled because we said that it's settled because we've been paid a lot of money to make sure that it's it's settled and stays settled. And you shouldn't trust that. (laughs) You you shouldn't. Nobody should. I hope Harris Rigby's right that this is a wake-up call to Democrats who tune out whatever they hear from Republicans, whatever they don't hear from the mainstream media, whatever they don't hear from their pop culture icons who tacitly endorse the status quo, and they make a lot of money to do so. Speaking of RFK Jr. and speaking of media and speaking of censorship and the status quo, Colin Leinbarger over at Gateway Pundit reports April 24th. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. blasts Fox News for ousting Tucker Carlson and presents an interesting theory on why it happened. Fox News stock took a punishment after news broke that Tucker Carlson's last program was this past Friday, not the 28th, but the previous Friday that came out Monday. And a lot of people are speculating, what was it? Was it ugly things he said to Fox News executives or called them or disagreed with them about. RFK Jr. says that his April 19th interview with Tucker might have been a contributing factor and represented a crossing of a red line. As he tweeted out, April 24th, Fox fires Tucker Carlson five days after he crosses the red line by acknowledging that the TV networks pushed a deadly and ineffective vaccine to please their pharma advertisers. Carlson's breathtakingly courageous April 19th monologue broke TV's two biggest rules. Here is another clip I'll play for you of that Tucker Carlson, RFK Jr. See what you think of this. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Sometimes you wonder just how filthy and dishonest our news media are. You'll be in the shower and you'll think they're bad, but how bad are they? Well, here's one measure of their badness. You can try this at home. Ask yourself, is any news organization you know of so corrupt that it's willing to hurt you on behalf of its biggest advertisers? Anyone who do that is obviously Pablo Escobar level corrupt and should not be trusted. What would that look like? That level of corruption. Well, imagine that the Trump administration had made it mandatory for American citizens to buy my pillow. That's one of Fox News' biggest advertisers. Imagine the administration declared that if you didn't rush out and buy at least one MyPillow, and then at least another booster pillow, you would not be allowed to eat out. 
You couldn't re-enter your own country. You couldn't have a paying job. My pillow, they told you with a straight face, was the very linchpin of our country's public health system. Now imagine as they told you that, that Fox, as a news organization, endorsed it, amplified the government's message. Imagine if Fox News attacked anyone who refused to buy my pillow as an ally of Russia, as an enemy of science. And then imagine that Fox kept up those libelous attacks even as evidence mounted that my pillow caused heart attacks, fertility problems, and death. If Fox News did that, what would you think of Fox News? Would you trust us? Of course you wouldn't. You would know that we were liars. Thank heaven Fox News never did anything like that, but the other channels did. The other channels took hundreds of millions of dollars from big pharma companies, and then they shilled for their sketchy products on the air. And as they did that, they maligned anyone who was skeptical of those products. At the very least, this was a moral crime. It was disgusting, but it was universal. It happened across the American news media. They all did it. So at this point, the question isn't who in public life is corrupt, too many to count. The question is, who is telling the truth? There are not many of those. One of them is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Robert Kennedy knew early that the COVID vaccines were both ineffective and potentially dangerous, and he said so in public to the extent he was allowed. Science has since proven Robert F. Kennedy Jr. right, unequivocally right. But Kennedy was not rewarded for this. He was vilified, he was censored. Because he dared to criticize their advertisers, the news media called Bobby Kennedy a Nazi, and then they attacked his family. But he kept doing it. He was not intimidated, and we were glad he wasn't. This is one of those moments when it's nice to have a truth teller around. It's helpful, because suddenly the stakes are very high. Considering what's happening in Ukraine, topic most of us don't know much about because the details are not reported. It was a year ago that every media outlet in the United States, from USA Today to the New York Times, told you it was a dangerous conspiracy theory to believe the U.S. government had ever funded secret biolabs in Ukraine. The idea was ridiculous. In fact, it was Russian disinformation. And then one day, in sworn testimony, Toria Newland of the State Department accidentally admitted that it was true. Yes, she said, there are many secret biolabs in Ukraine. And, quote, we are now, in fact, quite concerned that Russian troops, Russian forces, may be seeking to gain control of them. Wait a second, you may be wondering. Why does the U.S. government maintain secret biolabs in a primitive country like Ukraine? Why not Austria? Why Ukraine? And why didn't we dismantle and remove these secret biolabs when the war with Russia started? Nobody ever explained that. This show was attacked for asking the question. Now we have learned that actually it is far worse than just biolabs. Not only has the Biden administration been maintaining these labs in Ukraine in the middle of a war, it also has, quote, sensitive nuclear technology in Ukraine as well. And no, we're not making that up. They admitted it today. Watch. While Ukrainian staff are still operating the Zaporizhia a nuclear power plant, it does fall under the control of Russian armed forces and is currently being managed by Russia's state-owned uh, uh, nuclear energy firm, Rosatom. So this is a significant concern. And essentially, in this letter that has been reviewed by CNN, sent by the U.S. Department of Energy to Rosatom, the U.S. government has essentially warned Moscow not to touch the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant because of this sensitive American nuclear technology at the plant. So many questions here, but we'll begin with the biggest one. What exactly is, quote, sensitive American nuclear technology? Sensitive American nuclear technology? 
probably not to produce energy. No one in the media is going to ask that question. But if it's in the middle of Ukraine, in the middle of a war, it stands to reason this sensitive American nuclear technology has military applications. In other words, these are nuclear weapons. What else could they be? And you get the picture. Now, of course, that monologue had to do with more than just RFK Jr. and vaccines. But he said quite a lot there about other corporate media and big pharma and health concerns and dishonesty and deceit and fraud and myocarditis and fertility problems and a lot of irregularities around the coverage our corporate media has given and not given to many things. And then he continued on to Ukraine and weapons technology or nuclear power technology or who knows what kind of technology in Ukraine that now is vulnerable to Russian forces. And then there's biolabs in the Ukraine and they weren't there. And Tulsi Gabbard, speaking of Tulsi Gabbard and who formerly were the Democrats that tried to object to the status quo and what was done to them. I believe it was Mitt Romney who accused her of treason for floating the idea that Russia's motivation for going into Ukraine in the first place might have something to do with biolabs of the kind that COVID is believed to have escaped from in Wuhan, China. He called her some ugly things and she fired back and said, you need to retract them words. This is defamation. The penalty for treason is death. What part of what I said is treasonous. But then all of this really comes back again and again to the question of credibility and who has it and how do you know and who do you listen to and why do you trust those people? And for that matter, why do those people say what they say and not say what they don't say? And what are their interests? Going back again to Leviticus 17 and the place of sacrifice. You know, it's curious that the start of the chapter that I read for you at the top of this episode begins as per usual with many other commands in Leviticus. Yahweh spoke to Moses, speak to Aaron in this case and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing Yahweh has commanded. And at first you say, okay, well, that's standard fare. And then you continue on and we see that this has to do with killing an ox or lamb or goat in the camp or killing it outside the camp. And you think, well, what if you're just going to eat this animal? Do you really have to take every animal that you would kill and butcher and turn into foodstuffs? Do you really have to bring every animal that you would to the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord? or else you're going to be in trouble. But then you continue on and it's like, well, wait a second, what is this? He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people if he doesn't bring this animal as an offering to Yahweh? What is this about? I mean, really, like every time you're going to prepare an animal for butchery and butcher it, you have to bring it to the tent of meeting. 
But you keep on reading and you realize, wait a second, this is about more than just killing an animal to eat it. And we know that because verse 5 says, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to Yahweh, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to Yahweh. And you say, okay, all right, I, I think I'm following, but or what, right? Or people are just going to butcher their animal at home and eat it there. And like, what's, what's the big deal? And then you continue on. Verse 7. Verse 7 really changes the whole rationale as we should understand it. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And then you say, oh, oh, okay. Okay. Well, whoa, this is weird, right? It gets weird, but then because all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And we see Jesus quoting the Old Testament, not abolishing it, but affirming that this is scripture in the Old Testament. And to fulfill all of it, he has come not to abolish it, but to fulfill every word. That would include these. And then you realize it's not just about food, and it's not just about animals, and it's not just about blood. It's specifically about who are these animals being offered up to. And we're told that there is some idolatry going on. There is some pagan ritual magic, blood magic, more to the point, involving these goat demons and their appeasement in the mix. And God is putting a stop to that and ordering that that happen no more ever again. And then all of a sudden, the rest of the chapter to this point takes on a very different flavor, a very different connotation. Well, so also, so also, when you think that what the corporate media is reporting to us is just whatever they were interested in today, whatever they in their journalistic professionalism deem most relevant and most credible, that's what they're bringing to you. If that's what you're thinking, and then suddenly you realize, hey, wait a second, there's a lot of money that changes hands here not just on the basis of how many people watch a program, but on the basis of who pays for advertising and who controls licensing and who is friends with who and who exchanges favors and trades in these deals in back rooms and behind closed doors. When you start to realize, hey, wait a second, there are other motivations here in the mix besides just wanting to give you all the facts that are fit to print for your sake. When you realize that there is a lot of interest in controlling what is said and what isn't said, and that goes into who gets hired and fired and promoted and moved to prime time and not whose careers are abruptly ended and on what basis, when you start to realize that that's in the mix, and then you go back and you reassess what's been said previously, just leading up to the revelation, well... How could we have two standards of judgment? How could we have 
two sets of criteria by which we evaluate and assess things. One that we bring to the biblical text and a totally different one where we assume only the best, only the best of motives in our own contemporary context. And for that matter, my big challenge would be to ask, how is it that we're supposed to come out of the biblical text with a practical application equipped for every good work, being the man of God who is complete, mature, fully equipped for every good work, if simultaneously we're being told, read the text and understand how to read between the lines in the text and look at context clues in a passage like Leviticus 17 and throw all of that out the window, all of those rational metrics out the window when you assess news media. It doesn't follow. It does not match up and it's not consistent. And of course we can't do that. Of course we can't. These things are given to us in God's word. One, to understand the truth about who God is and his character and the character of his promises and his purposes, the unchangeable character of his purposes. But also two, we are given these things so that we understand what is in the heart of man, including but not limited to ourselves, what's in our own hearts, including what is in the hearts of those we are neighbors to or live in community with or go to church with or work with or are governed by or are informed by, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not either or, it's both and, that we would have an informed view of human nature and the spiritual war that we can't avoid. We're told we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And people will say, yes, absolutely. It means we shouldn't be getting into naming names and talking about people. But then a lot of those same folks who will say, well, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood also get very uncomfortable when you start saying, well, yeah, but there's spiritual forces in the mix here who are animating and driving some of what we're seeing play out in broader culture and in the political scene and in the geopolitical scene, not just the domestic local political scene, but around the world, there are spiritual forces that we should expect are maneuvering and trying to accomplish things and trying to get worship for themselves and trying to get people to stop worshiping Christ. And so how can it be? We say we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but then also we deny that there's any impact from the spiritual realm that we would wrestle there either, that there would be a spiritual war there either. Alex Nitzberg reports for TheBlaze.com. The office actor says he agrees with almost everything Tucker Carlson said in Twitter video. Actor Rain Wilson of The Office fame issued a tweet on Thursday declaring that he agreed with nearly everything Tucker Carlson said in his Wednesday night video. Quote, I never thought I'd say it, but I agree with Tucker Carlson on almost everything he's saying here. End quote. Wilson tweeted, linking to an article about the video. Fox News Media issued a press release on Monday claiming that Carlson and the network had, quote, agreed to part ways, end quote, though the Wall Street Journal, citing unnamed people, has reported that Carlson learned he was being let go around 10 minutes before Fox announced the news. Carlson posted a video to Twitter on Wednesday evening. In that video, which racked up more than 19 million views in less than 24 hours, Carlson said that most debates on TV are, quote, unbelievably stupid, end quote, while important issues are virtually not discussed. 
the two political parties and their donors have arrived at, quote, consensus on what benefits them, end quote, Carlson claimed, adding that, quote, they actively collude to shut down any conversation about it, end quote. Now, it's curious because Rain Wilson is not some big-time conservative guy. Now, he has said here in recent months that there is definitely an anti-Christian bias in Hollywood. And oh, by the way, if you look up some of the talk around the origins of the name for Hollywood in the first place, there are some at least rumors of occultic influence there. I don't know whether that is true or not. I'm not saying that it's true. I'm not spreading a false report. I hope somebody can verify that and get back with me. I trust. But Rain Wilson saying that's not so good. And then also following it up by saying, I agree with nearly everything Tucker Carlson is saying here is meaningful. And I think it's worth noting that like that event that I was telling you about that I attended at the Colorado State Capitol here a few years ago, where RFK Jr. and Michelle Malkin and the NAACP and Christian Home Educators of Colorado and BLM and MAGA flag-holding common folk all showed up on the same page. I think that this all points to the truth of what Tucker Carlson was saying that Rain Wilson is agreeing with, that RFK Jr. would agree with. It all points to a certain consensus that we're being played and pitted against each other. And in actual fact, a lot of these crises, even just from a narrative standpoint, the things that we get all upset with each other about, a lot of these crises are manufactured for the express purpose of divide and rule, divide and conquer, pit us against each other. And then while we're confused, while we are seeing red or blue, as the case may be, depending on if you're a conservative or a liberal, a Democrat or a Republican, while we are so wrapped up in that, the people who have been making out like bandits, sometimes quite literally, just keep on carving up the landscape between them. And they play both sides. And heads I win, tails you lose, sees us all the poorer year after year, decade after decade. You know, it's interesting. I took note of a email I got from PragerU. It's one of the outlets that I get email updates from. An email asking for donations. And I don't fault them for that. I don't have any money to send them. I can't spare any to send them. I need <laughs> all that I have so that I can keep on providing for my family. And I know God will provide. And if PragerU will endure, then I hope they will also see donations come in. But here was the email from PragerU. Dear PragerU supporter, we hope that you and your families are doing well considering this crazy world we are living in. From inflation to wars, the chaos and economic pain have been hard on everyone. Since 2020, the cost of food has risen 23%. The cost of gas has increased 40%. This has had a major impact on many PragerU supporters. During this difficult time for our nation, and thanks to your past support, the PragerU team is more committed and working harder than ever. I'll stop right here. I, I just... <clears throat> You know what follows. You've probably gotten these kinds of emails. You've heard these kinds of pitches. They're working really hard and they're asking for more resources. And the trouble is that this is a long defeat 
so long as the people who really control the microphone in corporate media and social media and in the two major political parties, as long as the people who are calling the shots are always able to print more money for themselves and pass it back and forth endlessly and then tax you and I coming and going and ship our jobs overseas and make us dependent on communist countries, formerly communist countries, as long as that's the case, it's going to get worse and worse, not better and better. And it might just be the case that Tucker Carlson doesn't come back from the place Fox News has put him in a timely manner. And it might just be the case that Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are both alike totally unacceptable to the status quo in this country. The donor class for the Republicans, the donor class for the Democrats, both alike. It might be the case that we are just the poorer for it. As a central banker here recently said in the UK, Brits should just get used to the fact that they are now poorer. They're all now poorer. What happened? And is it their own fault? No. But the people whose fault it is, so long as they can control your access to information and the means to act on that information, once you have it, they can keep you from being able to hold accountable major transnational corporations and organizations, so-called global citizens. They can keep you in a state of enslavement. Because in some sense, when these things are all added up together, what we find is even though slavery officially has been abolished, it is alive and well. It is still very much with us. Going back to Tucker Carlson for a moment, Paul Saka over at The Blaze highlights a video of Megyn Kelly saying Tucker Carlson is not yet fired. So he's not been fired. That would be inaccurate to say, I guess. Fox News bought his silence and is determined to destroy him. That's Megyn Kelly's take. And there's a video here. I'll play one more clip for this episode, just one more. And then we've got to wrap it up for this episode. But here you go. Here is Megyn Kelly talking through what's going on with Tucker Carlson and Fox News from her perspective as somebody who formerly worked for Fox News. I want to, I think, break some news for you. Tucker Carlson hasn't actually been fired. He's still an employee of the Fox News Channel. What happened was Suzanne Scott called him, she's the CEO, on Monday morning and said um, he was not going to be allowed to do any more shows and that he had been kicked out of his company email. And now they're going to have to negotiate an exit. Um, some reporting to me uh, suggests that she said it's going to be an amicable parting right, isn't it? <laughs> um, completely catching Tucker off guard. But Tucker's not fired. That's my information, that he still needs to negotiate the exit and that right now he's not free to launch a podcast or a digital show or negotiate with other employers at all because he's still under contract. They pulled his show off the air. They also fired his executive producer, Justin Wells. And 
though he tried to find out why, they wouldn't tell him. They refused to tell him why. I mean, to me, that's just so disheartening. He's been at the, at the company for years. He'd been in the prime time for seven years and saw Fox News through one of the most difficult times in its history, the immediate era post-Roger Ailes, where they didn't know left from right. They didn't know up from down. They really didn't have strong management leading the company. And they had lost two of their biggest stars, Bill O'Reilly and me, <laughs> um, at least at that time. So Tucker takes over. It's a huge order you know, that he was given, and he did it. He smashed the ball out of the park, and he took a lot of risks, and he was heterodox. He, was, he pushed against the orthodoxy on so many different things. And typically, Fox News liked that. So why? Why now? What was it that led them to treat their number one star with such disdain? I mean, dripping disdain to the point where he can no longer access his email. He doesn't get to tell his own team. He doesn't get to say goodbye. I mean, it's absolutely disrespectful to him. And unlike Don Lemon, he hadn't been immersed in controversy after controversy inside the building against his own colleagues. Yes, the leftist media had been coming after him repeatedly. And in the case of Dominion, to some extent, lawyers, though he wasn't their primary focus. So what was it? What would make your own company turn against you like that? The Fox News audience is clearly mad, and I don't blame them. It'll be interesting to see what the ratings were for the 8 p.m. hour last night. Brian Kilmeade hosted it. Uh, it's a rotating cast for now. And we'll see what they decide to do there. It's not Brian's fault. I mean, here's Brian, FYI. Here, here he is uh, in a moment where he is kind of acknowledging what happened. I'll just play the 14 seconds. It's SOT 21. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Fox News Tonight. I am Brian Kilmeade. As you probably have heard, Fox News and Tucker Carlson have agreed to part ways. I wish Tucker the best. I'm great friends with Tucker and always will be. But right now, it's time for Fox News Tonight, so let's get started. Uh, Kilmeade's a sweet guy, and he's a company man. He's, he, I'm sure he wasn't thrilled to be asked to do that show on that particular day, but he did it. He's a, he's a loyal employee. And Fox News is banking on its audience not leaving it on its audience being more in love with the Fox News brand than they were with Tucker. Uh, and we'll see. We'll see whether or not that's true. But I just think the way they handled it was disrespectful and gross. And I think Tucker Carlson deserved better. And I certainly hope that he uses Brian Friedman, my old lawyer, uh, to get the remainder of his contract. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Tucker was making around $20 million a year and that they will pay him out on his deal. I don't know when it expired, but he was in the process reportedly of negotiating a renewal. So they should pay him out and they should let him out of his non-compete so he can go out there and get his voice on the air now when his audience will most be missing it. Okay. So there is Megan Kelly, another person who has worked on the inside there at Fox News and who since leaving has done her own thing. And she, along with the likes of Ben Shapiro, have said, as many have, Tucker is going to land on his feet. He will do well. But then here's the thing. If there's enough people trying to destroy Tucker Carlson, then are they just going to find something and repeat it often enough like they do about everybody else that they want to marginalize and silence and neutralize? Will they find something and... Are there consequences for that? You know, I, I think so often in this country, we get used to that just being the expectation. We get used to that being politics as usual and the news media as usual and 
the way corporations work as usual. But do we recognize that that is an evil thing? That is actually a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. When you bear false witness against your neighbor, when you slander your neighbor, when you slander your enemy even, because your neighbor can be your enemy and who is my neighbor is the obvious question. And you say, well, whoever you're adjacent to, if he's not enough of your neighbor for you to know anything about him or have any kind of a relationship with him, well, then why are you talking about him? You know, what do you know? Your neighbor is anybody that you're going to be talking with who has some kind of a relevant bearing on your business, your life, your livelihood. And so you could say, well, he's not like literally my neighbor. And we take it too literally and we say, my neighbor is the person who lives next door to me or across the street or in the house behind me. Sure. Okay. Yep. They're your neighbor. Also too, your neighbor can be the person on the TV screen who is speaking into your household and into your vehicle and into your place of business and into your circle of family and friends. In some ways, this media age that we live in right now is making all of us neighbors. And there are limits to that, obviously. And some neighbors are nearer than others. But the fishing expeditions that we've come to expect and we've come to just kind of shrug at. We follow them, we watch them, we pay attention, but we just kind of tolerate that that's how it goes. Those fishing expeditions are not so good when they come from a place of animus that precedes actually having a just complaint, a sound reason to be upset with a person. Now, You might say, okay, but that's all true of Tucker Carlson too, right? Is he bearing false witness against people? How about RFK Jr.? He's spotlighting RFK Jr. And he didn't have the good sense to quiet RFK and some of the claims he was making, maybe like ABC News was. Tucker's interview with RFK Jr. was live and that's Tucker Carlson's fault. And, you know, what if he's bearing false witness against big pharma executives. And I say, you know, (laughs) do note, right? Do note that James O'Keefe, another heavy hitter, was also just very, very recently, very recently removed from the organization that he founded. We're not talking Fox News. We're talking an organization he founded, Project Veritas. After very similar kinds of reporting or a very similar narrative was taking shape based on statements by a Pfizer executive and by other insiders at these big pharmaceutical companies. Very similar kinds of exposés highlighting that, you know, the employees at these companies, some very high level employees at these companies, in their own words, by their own admission, their own testimony, whether they knew that they were going to be aired for all the world to see on the internet or not, by their own words, they admitted that some very shady things are going on behind the scenes inside these corporations. And then all of a sudden, next thing you know, James O'Keefe is out, gone, totally unrelated. Ah, It couldn't possibly have anything to do with the whole Pfizer business. No, no, no. No, he's hard to work for. He's hard to work with. That's people complaining about him. We got to get him out of here. Hmm. Coincidence? I draw your attention back 
to Leviticus 17.7. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons, after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And without that verse, you might be very confused. You might say, what's up with God and the weird laws about bringing these animals to the tent of meeting? Like, what's God all worked up about now? And shame on us if that's our attitude, even for an instant. But we do have verse 7 in Leviticus 17. And we do have it clarifying all of a sudden what's really going on here. What, what, what is being described here is false worship, is idolatry, is blood magic rituals involving demons. And then you say, whoa, whoa, okay, all right. And then all of a sudden you realize how restrained and how merciful and how patient and how long-suffering and how gracious God is being not to have just struck dead all involved. He's not coming into this speaking to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, this is the thing Yahweh has commanded. Guns ablazing, but very tactfully and very delicately and very artfully and very measured. God calls the people of Israel out for whoring after goat demons. And you say, well, that's really weird, right? That's super weird. And you can't believe that. And I say, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And yes, I do believe it. And have you noticed that there is a, a big conference of Satanists that is coming up here that the tickets have been sold out for? You have after school Satan clubs cropping up in public schools in this country. You have Satanist statues being put up in public places because that's what separation of church and state means, apparently, in some people's minds. Have you noticed that there are a growing number of people who literally are worshiping the devil and the Baphomet, which is literally a goat demon? Have you noticed that? Is it just me? Is it just me who's noticed that? And you say, well, we shouldn't be making inflammatory remarks about people who are just, you know, eh, they're just being weird, you know. Don't take that seriously. Yeah, it's a passing thing. And nah, I wouldn't worry about it. What I will worry about is you talking about it, though. And I say, what was that about? We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this world's darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So we must derive from this that evil is real, it exists, and it has force, and that there is power, and that there is darkness in the world, and that we are struggling against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of the world's darkness. We are struggling against them. If we're not struggling at all, well, then we're actually not correctly understanding or applying Ephesians 6.12, where Paul says in the preceding verse, put on the full armor of God so that you can make your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, there's this popular dismissive, which is, oh, that sounds like a conspiracy theory. If I'm not mistaken, another word for conspiracy is scheme, which is to say that there are schemes and that Christians must 
know that. Otherwise, how in the world are you supposed to make your stand against the devil's schemes? If you don't know that there are schemes, if, if you're stubbornly committed to saying there is no such thing as scheming in the world, that doesn't happen. You don't need to worry about it. Or if you would say, well, there's scheming, but only like especially bad people who don't really amount to anything, only those kinds of people scheme. Well, then you're going to be very vulnerable. And again, I think you are not being as wise as a serpent and as harmless as a dove. But verse 13 picks it up. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. Therefore, has to do with verse 12. You don't wear armor unless you're in a fight, unless you're in a battle. You don't put on armor in verse 13, except that you expect the day of evil is coming. Paul says, take up the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. More of us need to understand the ramifications of that for our present circumstance. More of us Christians need to appreciate the relevance of this passage to everything we're seeing socially, politically, culturally, economically. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.